This is Thinking About OBGYN with your hosts, Antonia Roberts and Howard Harrell. Antonia. Howard. What are we thinking about on today's episode? Well, I wanted to talk about amnio infusions. And of course, there's a lot of interesting recent papers for us to discuss. But first, what's something we do for no reason? Well, how about trying to go really fast at the start of a cesarean when the mother has been placed under general anesthesia for some reason? Okay, so basically, yes, we don't always do cesareans at maximum speed every single time. Although we do use a standardized, efficient technique and we're not ever wasting time getting the baby delivered, most of the time we can afford to be more controlled and deliberate with the steps leading up to delivery. There's this adage that says, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And I think that's true for surgery, just like for many other things. And Like race cars? Well, <laughs> maybe not race cars necessarily. I'd have to, I'd have to ask one of the formula one drivers, but it, okay. In surgery, at least it means that if you go calmly and you're taking the time just to look at the anatomy before you cut it and you're, you just think carefully about each movement you're making before you make it, then you're less likely to have an injury or complication that then on afterwards would take much longer to heal. And of course, complications can still happen even with the most technically perfect surgery. But the idea is that if you go slower up front, just a little bit, then on the tail end, the healing will be faster. So slow is smooth, smooth is fast. But here, what you're saying is you're talking about going like breakneck speed to cut the abdomen open and get the baby out as fast as humanly possible, which probably going at it that way would result in delivery maybe a few minutes sooner than if you had gone the usual pace, perhaps. But that would be at the cost of a much higher risk of some kind of surgical injury to the mom or to the baby, because you're exchanging haste for caution. So is am I right? Is that what you're talking about? Well, maybe. I tend to do all of these cesareans at what you're calling breakneck speed. And I would argue that I'm not exchanging any risk for that benefit, but people do them at different speeds. And we talked about different cesarean techniques previously in a different episode. And if you can perfect the technique of blunt entry and especially not separating the rectus sheath from the fascia, which is almost never necessary, then you can routinely deliver a baby within a minute or so of the skin incision without rushing excessively, in my opinion. But obviously, when you encounter scar tissue that doesn't separate well, bluntly, or if the scar tissue particularly involves bladder or bowel, or that's joined up near the front of the uterus, something like that, you do have to do some extra dissection to get all that out of the way. And it'll definitely take longer than a minute, and you need to slow down and do those things. And we sometimes will have urgent medical reasons to get a baby out just absolutely as soon as possible when every second really does count. So examples of that might be a placental abruption or a bleeding previa or uterine rupture, maternal cardiac arrest, an intractable shoulder dystocia or an amniotic fluid embolism, just to name a few things. And a lot of those things might occur in patients who don't have adequate regional anesthesia. And there's no time to sit around and do a spinal, of course, and wait on that. So, so they'll get a general anesthetic and you want to do as fast a delivery as possible. 
even if you have scar tissue that you'd like to spend more time dissecting to avoid cutting the bladder or bowel, you, you go pretty quick. But I see people do that same sort of panicked pace for a cesarean delivery, even when there's no medical emergency. This occurs occasionally when, say, it's a scheduled cesarean. The mother and fetus are doing well. They're both stable. But the anesthesiologist is just not able to get neuraxial anesthesia working for whatever reason. So they decide to proceed under general anesthesia. Yeah, I've definitely seen that too. And I don't think it's ever quite been explained to me. Why why are we going fast if we just heard the baby's heart rate is perfect? I think the concern is that general anesthesia will cross the placenta and harm the baby somehow. So as soon as they've intubated the mom, we're just racing against the clock and we're trying to get the baby out before the medications that are circulating in her blood will reach her uterus. So actually, there are some animal studies that suggest that early, prolonged, very high doses of anesthetic throughout embryonic development can be teratogenic. But there's no evidence that a human undergoing anesthesia for surgery at any time during pregnancy has any increased risks of fetal malformations or developmental disorders. ACOG has a committee opinion on this too, which says that no pregnant woman should ever be denied a necessary surgical procedure due to her pregnancy. They do mention that at some stages, there might be a higher risk of potentially preterm labor, not due to the anesthetic, but just due to the stresses of surgery. So they address that. But as far as actual harm to the baby in the context of you're actively delivering them, I don't see any reason that this would, wouldn't would apply to those situations as well. Yeah, I think the case is just what you said, that people are concerned that the newborn will come out essentially anesthetized and harder to transition. There's lots of reasons why general anesthesia is riskier in pregnancy than outside of pregnancy. One of the main reasons is that the maternal airway is more difficult due to pregnancy. There's something like a fourfold higher risk of failed intubation than someone who's not pregnant, which is probably every anesthesiologist's worst nightmare. I've had it happen, but if we've decided it's necessary to take that risk, I don't think people are doing these super fast C-sections out of a concern for the long-term effects on the baby's brain from the medicines. But what they're really worried about is just that the baby will be more sedated than longer it's exposed, that it'll be harder to transition, and that if we allow them to become sedated by not cutting those vessels off as fast as possible, then they might not be able to breathe well on their own once they're born. And the theory of it makes sense, but thankfully, the evidence doesn't show that at all. There was a study in the October edition of the American Journal of Perinatology this year that looked at neonatal outcomes with a comparator of regional anesthesia to general anesthesia at the time of cesarean. Now, they did exclude those really urgent deliveries from the study, things like abruptions and cord prolapses and uterine ruptures. So that eliminated some possible confounders. But among the non-urgent cesarean deliveries, there was no significant difference in things like arterial or venous cord gases or five-minute APGAR scores or NICU admission rates, for that matter, or neonatal lengths of stay. This was true even when there was an induction of anesthesia to delivery time that was greater than 10 minutes with general anesthesia. Yeah, and I've even seen some studies that find worse five-minute APGARs or cord gases with regional anesthesia than with general. And in those studies, they theorize that possibly the maternal hypotension from regional or the 
drop in maternal core body temperature temporarily from all the fluid boluses might be contributing to that. But then there are almost identical studies that find the exact opposite outcomes and favor regional over general. So my impression of this is it's probably a wash there. There probably isn't a true difference there. I will say that there's a study in the Gray Journal from 2019 that I'll put a link to that found that there is a linear decrease in the umbilical artery pH that's proportional to the time interval from initiation of regional anesthesia until the time of delivery of the newborn. This is thought to be due to the hypotension caused by the regional anesthetic, and it's especially prominent among obese patients. Yeah, and that's actually counterintuitive because normally you think with obese patients, there's a dilution based on their weight with meds that they might take through their mouth or IV, but it's there's a compression when it's axial. But I and I assume you're just talking about a surgical spinal, right? Not like the longer you go from getting a laboring epidural to delivery, the worse the baby's pH is. Yes. Well, the effect probably can occur with laboring epidurals as well, but that wasn't what was studied here. Of course, in a laboring epidural, we have continuous fetal monitoring, so we're watching what's happening and responding to it if they develop reflexive late decelerations or things like that. But after you've gotten a spinal and positioned a patient for a cesarean, we're not doing that continuous monitoring. In that study, it took 27 minutes from placement of the spinal to delivery of the fetus before you would get to a pH of below 7.1, assuming that you started, of course, with a normal fetus. And there's a lot of things that go into that delay of time, like positioning the patient and placing a catheter and prepping and draping and all those things. And maybe the surgeon isn't exactly ready at the time the spinal's placed, and then perhaps it takes a while because of scar tissue to deliver the newborn. Or maybe the spinal isn't working quite well, and we're just kind of sitting there, standing there, giving it a few more minutes to see if the medicine will catch up and it'll work and provide adequate pain, pain relief. But still, we should be thinking about minimizing all of those time elements as much as possible so that the perfect storm of all those things taking a long time doesn't happen and we should control what we can control. Yeah, once we've prepped and draped, we're not monitoring the baby anymore. So for all we know, that perfect NST could it could be doing anything once we pull the monitors off. So, But to go from normal pH 27 minutes later to go to pH of 7.1, Obviously, it suggests that there's not just a complete occlusion for 27 minutes, that just maybe a a slight decrease in blood flow. And I would remember that this was in presumably a normal baby. Yeah, yeah. So imagine you had a baby that you're doing the C-section because of recurrent decelerations or some other issue. You're already worried that your gas may be low, approaching 7.0 or below 7.1, something like that. Now you go down, do the cesarean. And it's 15 minutes before you deliver the baby, and you could easily find yourself with a gas that's below seven. Definitely. Well, the study you cited earlier compared spinal versus general anesthetic for cesarean, and it found that over time, the two didn't differ from one another. But then you just said here that spinals over time do have a negative consequence if the incision to delivery time is prolonged, or at least the anesthetic to delivery time. So do we do we really think that a prolonged interval from anesthetic to delivery could be harmful in the setting of general anesthesia? I think there's a difference between saying that you don't need to go deliberately fast just because it's a general anesthetic versus with a spinal, you can take all the time you want. And in fact, there's another study 
also in the American Journal of Perinatology from February of this year, that looked at the rate of neonatal complications with the length of time the patient was under general anesthesia before delivery. Now, once again, all these pregnancies had a normal fetal tracing prior to undergoing cesarean. They had 218 pregnancies analyzed. They grouped them into two categories by duration, those with an induction to delivery time of less than four minutes and those with an induction of anesthesia to delivery time of greater than four minutes. They looked at an aggregate of many adverse outcomes, both neonatal and maternal. So things like low APGAR scores or needs for ventilation or supplemental oxygen, but also things, maternal things like bladder injury or bowel injury. And they did find an increase in their adverse neonatal outcome aggregate when the delivery took longer than four minutes. So in general, we should probably be aiming for a goal of delivering the baby within about four minutes of starting. And we were just talking about previously what parts in the standardized technique are necessary and what can be eliminated. So so obviously we should be prepped and draped before we start general anesthesia for delivery, even though we wouldn't do it in that order with a spinal for cesarean or for general and non-obstetric surgeries. Yeah, and that's already been the standard. And I think that when a young OBGYN trainee is doing extra fast surgery for an emergent indication under general anesthesia, it can be easy to adopt that habit for non-emergent deliveries under general anesthesia as well, especially if that's what they're seeing modeled to them by their seniors. I will say one of the other reasons why I wanted to talk about this issue is related to the issue of delayed cord clamping or optimal cord clamping, as we call it. One of the most common objections that I'm hearing obstetricians give for not doing delayed cord clamping is that allowing that minute before clamping it when the patient's under general anesthesia is bad for the baby for whatever reason. And all this is related to the idea that, again, the anesthetic is traveling through the placenta and the cord to the baby and they're getting an extra minute of those medicines and that that somehow is bad. But this literature that we've been talking about should go a long way to answering that concern. And what's more, the issues associated with things like lower pH with the anesthetic due to perhaps maternal obesity or maternal hypotension, well, they're not relevant once we've delivered the newborn, even if it's still attached to the placenta. Those issues no longer should physiologically affect the baby. So four minutes should be plenty of time to include a minute of optimal cord clamping and deliver the baby regardless of the anesthetic choice. But if it is taking longer for some reason, then you should have some confidence that if you're holding the baby out there, it's taken five minutes and you've got 60 seconds more to give, that the baby has been removed from that environment of hypertension and pressure due to obesity, even if the cord's still intact. Well, I think four minutes is a good goal to aim for. And if there's no scar tissue or anything like that, then the delivery could potentially be even quicker. So moving on, you brought up your historical tidbit in the prior episode about chauvinism in the old OBGYN textbooks. So do you have any new historical tidbits for us today? Well, 2022, the year that we are theoretically in, currently existing in, I know you believe in time travel as a big Doctor Who aficionado. Yeah, I'm Always a Doctor Who fan. Anyway, it's 2022, so... 2022, yeah. The year we're in right now happens to be the 150th anniversary of the publication of John Braxton Hicks's seminal paper on uterine contractions, which don't result in childbirth, what we now today call pretty universally Braxton Hicks contractions. It's a weird thing to think back then that he took the time to put his hands 
on women's uteruses for sometimes 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes and feel what was going on over very long periods of time to develop the knowledge and understand what he wrote in this paper. And I'll put a link to the paper that folks can read it for themselves if they like. But there are a few interesting things in it that I like to point out. One was that obstetricians of the day recognized that our ability to make an abdominal mass contract when we rubbed it or touched it, stimulated it, meant that it was a pregnancy and not some other tumor. So they actually used this fact to distinguish between pregnancies and cancers. Something, of course, we no longer have to think about in the day and age of ultrasound. But if you could stimulate this mass to cause a contraction, or if the patient reported that she was having contractions, it meant she was pregnant rather than have a ovarian tumor, for example. And he cataloged the nature of the uterus and the contractions it might have throughout pregnancy at different gestational ages, and what patients reported feeling and how often and things like that. He also comments that with careful observation, you could tell the difference between the uterine vascular sounds during a contraction, what we call uterine souffle, because they became higher pitched as the spiral arteries were contracted and made more narrow. Souffle is such a weird word for this context, but I agree that we are very spoiled nowadays by having pregnancy tests and ultrasounds. I guess sometimes it's hard for someone to tell apart even gas in their abdomen from early fetal movements. So maybe the presence of contractions is another clue when you don't have any other technology. It makes me wonder too, how many times someone went into labor back in Braxton Hicks's time and gave birth without even having realized they were pregnant. Yeah, exactly. We take for granted how easy it is today to diagnose a pregnancy, but this was an area of a lot of concern back in the day. And that's why we read today still about things like Chadwick's sign and all these historical remnants of signs and symptoms that painted a picture that a patient was pregnant. And Braxton Hicks was adding to that list the idea of uterine contractions or uterine activity, representing to us that this was a pregnancy and not, say, ovarian tumor or a large fibroid or something that needed operating on. But the most interesting thing to me about this paper is that taken as a whole, it's an illustration that there is no correlation between uterine contractions or uterine activity and labor itself. Yeah, and we can see that now with ultrasound for scanning someone, even early in the second trimester, we can watch the uterus contract. And a lot of people don't realize that the uterus basically is contracting all the time throughout the whole pregnancy. And sometimes it causes a sensation, but sometimes it doesn't really for most of the pregnancy, it doesn't. And it's a muscle and it needs to exercise. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It needs to practice for the big event. And of course, labor will always reach a point where it does hurt, but then sometimes also not labor hurts, which is not necessarily the most helpful thing to hear sometimes. Well, yeah. So I know it sounds weird to make the claim that there is no correlation between contractions and delivery of a baby, but that's essentially what this paper is known for claiming. I originally read this paper because I have a book called Classics in Obstetrics and Gynecology that presents several innovative or classic papers from OBGYN over the last couple of hundred years, and they include this paper. And in it, they introduce the paper as stating that the false belief, essentially, that there is a connection between contractions and labor has led to the overuse of contraction-inhibiting medications. And that's why they thought this paper was still important today. So let me explain what I mean when I say that there's not a correlation between contractions and having a baby, essentially. Maybe that'll save a few emails <laughs> that uh, call me crazy. But anyway, the address, if you do choose to opine, is thinking about OBGYN at gmail.com. Now, I have six children, and my wife was induced with our last child. 
And at the start of the induction, she was, say, one or maybe two centimeters, and she received oxytocin, and only about four hours later, she had a baby. Now, in those four hours, she probably didn't have more than 100 contractions. She also, of course, had artificial rupture membranes. But think back over the prior weeks and months of that pregnancy. Let's say that in the previous 10 weeks, she had had a couple of thousand contractions, maybe. So if you have 70 days, that's 10 weeks, and you have 30 contractions a day off and on, that's 2,100 contractions. And after all those contractions, you're only one or two centimeters dilated. But then just in three hours, you have a mere 100 contractions and boom, a baby comes out. Well, it's, yeah, it's very compelling when you put it like that with the math. But I think the obvious answer is that those last 100 contractions in the hospital must have been a lot stronger than all of the prior ones she had had in the preceding weeks. And there obviously must be some degree of truth to that in terms of how strongly the contractions are and their coordination and things like that that make them more effective. But it's also not like out of those 2,000 plus contractions, it's not like some of them weren't humdingers. Some of them along the way were very painful. And yet she was only about a centimeter dilated for all that uterine activity and all that work. Braxton Hicks just observed the same thing 150 years ago. Mere contractions alone are insufficient to have a baby. So I think a more mature understanding of labor is that there's a certain amount of cervical ripening that must take place before contractions can do anything. The contractions are just there to push the baby down and expel the fetus, maybe apply pressure of the head to the cervix, but the cervix dilates due to underlying biomolecular changes in its composition, then those processes tend to take hours to days to maybe weeks for women. And of course, they happen mostly at the end of pregnancy. And that's why we don't have more preterm babies, perhaps. So it's more like a two-hit hypothesis. So you need both the contractions and the cervical change to have a baby. And the contractions are not enough to cause the cervical change that that happens sort of almost independently or it has its own influences and contractions without the cervix dilating just doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah, I think that's right. Even in the case of cervical insufficiency, the cervix will dilate. Let's say at 20 weeks, maybe 18 weeks, someone has cervical insufficiency. Eventually, they will start contracting and then the fetus will be expelled. That, by the way, is called the Ferguson reflex when fetal pressure on the cervix, distension on the cervix, stimulates the neuroendocrine responses that lead to oxytocin production and then subsequently lead to onset of contractions. Yeah. And again, that's not the contractions that cause the Ferguson reflex to start. Like there's already the dilation there before that happens, just to not make it too confusing. But that makes the diagnosis of cervical insufficiency by just asking somebody their history difficult sometimes because the patient may have come in with contractions, in which case we would say, well, that wasn't cervical insufficiency, that was labor. But those contractions might have started after she already got to five or six centimeters. And if you're at 20 weeks, then that's fully dilated, really, before that Ferguson reflex and before those contractions took over. So in those cases, you don't know if that patient had been at full dilation for days before they came in and started contracting or whether something else caused them to contract first. 
Yeah, exactly. And maybe she says, I really started contracting in the last three or four hours. And on exam, you discover that she's six centimeters. And that's probably cervical insufficiency. But the thing that frustrates me on the 150th anniversary of the publication of this paper is that we still act like uterine contractions are the cause of preterm labor. And therefore, our main mechanism that we've looked to fight preterm labor has focused on contractions. We use tocolytic drugs to try to stop contractions, or essentially we use progesterone to try to quiet the uterus down if you've had a history of preterm labor to prevent contractions. Although I'm well aware that that's not the likely mechanism of action of progesterone if it did have any activity, but still I hear people say that all the time. We're very focused on contractions. But by the time contractions start, the underlying cascade of events and inflammatory and neuroendocrine circuits that have been activated in labor, they're already out of hand. Thus, it's too late for tocolytics to actually help the patient. They still have the appearance of helping only because about 85% of women who present with symptoms that look like preterm labor, maybe regular painful contractions, maybe some cervical change, well, that labor will arrest naturally, at least for a couple of days. So whether or not you do anything at all, those labors will stop about 85% of the time. And of course, that's despite the fact that they're having, again, regular painful uterine contractions, maybe even with cervical change. And that's what Braxton Hicks observed. Nifedipine for acute tocolysis is actually no better than placebo for reducing the rate of delivery within 48 hours or stopping preterm delivery or changing when patients deliver in general or improving any natal outcomes as we talked about last year. And even though it's too late to intervene once the labor process has already started, it doesn't mean that tocolysis works prophylactically before labor either, like preventing them from ever getting out of hand. So one example of this is progesterone supplementation in patients with prior preterm birth, which we've talked a lot about recently. But numerous studies have also been done on long-term preemptive tocolysis or maintenance tocolysis that goes past 48 hours, and none of those studies have ever shown any sort of desirable outcome, let alone something that justifies the risks associated with that treatment and the risks of those drugs. So while contractions alone aren't enough to cause labor, neither is stopping contractions alone enough to prevent labor. That previous statement you said about acute tocolysis not being any better than placebo probably still sounds outrageous to a lot of people. I know it's still really common practice, but that was from a randomized placebo-controlled trial that was published in the Green Journal in 2021 by Seth Hawkins and his colleagues. So this is very credible, very legitimate evidence. I, I don't remember if we brought up the same trial when we talked about it before, but... Yeah, we did. And I think that's why we did that episode on tocolytics at the time is that that paper about Bricardi had just been published. And I'll put a link again to a collection of some of these studies. Folks can look at them for themselves about really a surprising lack of evidence about the efficacy of tocolytics. I will say that one thing that people always mention is the Canadian Ritadrine study. And for the life of me, I've never appreciated why people found the Canadian Ritadrine study as supportive of the idea of tocolytics at least the idea of giving 48 hours to get steroids. And so I actually recently went back and reread that study to try to understand that better. And what the study says is for their main conclusions, they found no improvement in neonatal outcomes. They found that terbutaline was ineffective for the outcomes that they designed. They found no differences in the percentage of people who delivered preterm or by a certain gestational age or a certain week or the average weeks of gestation at the time of delivery. It was this negative study. But they did say 
that there was a difference in how many folks remained pregnant at 48 hours. This was the sort of subset analysis of this Ritadrine study, a little sub-finding. And they didn't make a big deal out of that because they recognized that that fact didn't lead to any improvement in neonatal outcomes, despite the fact that maybe a few more babies received corticosteroids because of it. It didn't improve the outcome of interest, though, which is whether or not babies do better, whether they have shorter NICU stays or less admissions or better neurologic outcomes. But for a long time, I didn't realize that that's why people keep citing the Canadian Ritadrine study is because of that one little sub-finding that the authors themselves thought wasn't important. And that one study, out of all the other studies that are negative on this issue, has to be taken in the context that it didn't improve the outcomes of interest and that it disagrees with many other studies that are better done, like the Procardia study that we just discussed. So to put this in a bigger context, there have been roughly 400 such tocolytic studies. And so you would expect there to be 5% of those studies that would find some false positive findings, particularly when you're looking at so many different potential outcomes measured. So that gets into the multiple comparators problem and things like that. But there should be multiple studies that show some improvement. Literally, there should be like 20 of them. So it's actually quite surprising that there's only one or two that have shown statistically significant differences. But again, we need to decide what's important for obese babies and what's important is how they do. It could be that prolonging their labor by 48 hours is actually harmful if they're septic or something like that. So we have to look at neonatal and infant outcomes. I'm just pulling, every time we talk about this, I feel incredulous and I have to pull up the ACOG practice bulletin again and just word search tocolysis. In the practice bulletin, they say tocolytic therapy generally is effective for up to 48 hours. So I think this... Yeah, and again, that comes from the Canadian Ritterine study. So yeah. if you look at it, I think that's from a... 2003 or 2004 2000, source. It's actually a 2004 Cochrane. 2004. 2004, yeah, yeah. yeah. So 2004 source. Before the study we just mentioned was written and a bunch of other studies like it. But if you look at that 2004 Cochrane review, it's influenced by this Canadian Ritadrine study. And so they're essentially citing a negative study that's out of date and a study that didn't improve fetal outcomes. Yeah. So I feel like the weight of the evidence really should lead to practice change. Well, it should have already ha happened. More importantly, we don't use Ritadrine. <laughs> so, well, yeah. <laughs> even if you want to argue about that, we're not using that drug, we have to look at the drugs we're using and the literature says they're ineffective. I have to wonder when is, when is this practice bulletin going to get updated in a way that helps the vast majority of OBGYNs to also maybe change their practice but yeah, we've talked about that a lot. And I think it's the therapeutic imperative. I, yeah. I don't think that there's much consideration to change. It's like, well, let's try something. Why not? We've got to try something. If using these drugs helps one person finish their steroids and that leads to some improvement, I think that's the thought. But again, you might actually just be hurting somebody by yeah. prolonging the pregnancy of a baby that is has subclinical sepsis. So neonatal outcomes are what matter. And we have to have studies that show that babies do better with tocolytics in terms of improving their outcomes before you can be justified in using them. Yeah. And I wonder if part of it too, isn't just that we're making the mother feel better by reducing the intensity of her contraction. Maybe. I think the group of women who benefit are those 
whose contractions are going to go away anyway. They're having Braxton Hicks contractions. So tocolytics are really yeah. good at stopping yeah. Braxton Hicks contractions. They weren't going to deliver. But when a woman presents who's six centimeters, seven centimeters, and she's painfully contracting every two minutes, have you ever seen tocolytic drugs work and actually stop her labor? No, absolutely not. No. Okay. Well, you mentioned 85% of women who present in threatened preterm labor will stop progressing. Like they, they won't actually deliver at that time. So where was it that you got that number, 85%? Well, that's one of the reasons why I was going to go back through and look at some of these tocolytic studies again, try to answer the question. It depends on how you define labor. That's been a problem for these sorts of studies from the very beginning. Some studies defined the patients enrolled into the trials as merely people having contractions, so many per hour, rated so painfully, that sort of thing. Some needed cervical change and others didn't. But if you look at the individual trials, which have a placebo arm, and there are many of those where a placebo arm was included, then depending on which definition of labor they use in the study, you'll find that between 50 and 85% of women enrolled in the trial stayed pregnant in the placebo arm for 48 hours. So it really just depended upon how you define labor. Okay, well, let's move on because I want to talk about amnioinfusion. Okay, so historically, amnioinfusion was used for a couple reasons. The first and most common one was to treat meconium-stained amniotic fluid. The The theory was to flush it out. So the old belief was that if we could reduce the amount of meconium that's in the amniotic fluid that is getting into the baby's pharynx and their airway, then we can reduce the rate of meconium aspiration syndrome because once the baby's born and they take a breath, we have theoretically flushed out all the meconium and they can't breathe it into their lungs. But we stopped doing this practice for meconium some years ago. Do you happen to know the evidence of what led us to stop it? Well, I actually lived through this. I'm old enough to have been practicing before and now after we fundamentally changed how we manage pregnancies with meconium-stained amniotic fluid in a couple different ways. This practice stopped after there was a large trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine authored by Frazier and colleagues in September of 2005, and this was the first good study to ever look at this. They conducted an international trial at 56 birthing centers in 13 countries and included just about 2,000 women in this randomized interventional trial. They even randomized the women as to whether or not they had significant variable decelerations on their chart, which will be important for our conversation in a minute. They looked at all these different outcomes, all the things you can imagine, and they found no difference between the two arms. This was the definitive answer about this question. And the practice stopped afterwards, although, as you can imagine, of course, it took some time for people to to stop the practice. I actually think this is also a great and interesting example in the scientific literature of where one good, large, randomized controlled trial trumps meta-analysis or systematic reviews of many smaller trials. It's a good example, too, of where the Cochrane reviews are sometimes limited in their approach. The Cochrane review published in 2014 on this topic actually concludes that amnioinfusion is only beneficial in settings where facilities for perinatal surveillance are limited. And that's a weird way of saying that they included several small studies from countries like India and Pakistan that showed positive results. And meta-analysis are limited in this regard. And so the point to remember is that meta-analyses of heterogeneous studies are easily trumped by one good randomized controlled trial. Now, meta-analysis of homogeneous studies, that's not the case. 
But this is essentially the Cochrane Review here, a meta-analysis of heterogeneous studies. So it may not be worthwhile for you to consider its outcomes because this sort of meta-analysis doesn't have a really good mechanism of dealing with these heterogeneity problems. And so it ends up actually being a level two evidence like this Cochrane Review, whereas the randomized controlled trial by Frazier and colleagues is level one evidence. So I see people miss that point and mess that up a lot. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely this sort of respect that might be out of proportion to what it deserves for the meta-analyses and the Cochrane Reviews. But as you said, they only work well if they're reviews of several homogeneous studies. And this kind of thing does work really well for studies on blood pressure drugs or diabetes drugs, for example, than it would for smaller studies of disparate obstetric cases. The other thing that limits Cochrane reviews is that they don't include sort other sorts of data other than prospective randomized controlled trials, and particularly in obstetrics, not internal medicine necessarily, but in obstetrics, there's a lot of things that we just can't subject to randomized controlled trials. But we can do case collections and controlled studies and things like that, but we can't randomize people to these interventions due to ethical reasons. We don't randomize pregnant women to a lot of things. So there aren't a lot of randomized controlled trials for a lot of very important topics. So sometimes our best evidence about obstetric issues comes from something other than a randomized controlled trial, and the Cochrane database just doesn't deal well with that. But before you go on, the other thing that's interesting to me is how the names we give things affect how we think about them. We are easily biased, and we narrow our views when we think inside of boxes. That's my problem with thinking so hard about contractions, for example, is that we go down lots of dead ends, ultimately, looking for treatments for preterm labor in the last couple of decades, maybe not going and exploring new avenues of research. But in this case, if you think that meconium aspiration syndrome, this thing that can be a fatal disease for newborns, is due to aspirating meconium, then it only makes logical sense that you would try to get the meconium diluted out before the baby inhales this fluid into its lungs when it takes its first breath or as it cycles through the lungs. And so we used to do this. And we also used to use a deep suction, what's called a delay suction trap, and we would suction the oropharynx before the baby was delivered to try to get this meconium out before it inhaled it. And around the same time, by the way, that process was also found to be ineffective and perhaps even harmful due to laryngeal spasm that the trap suction would excite. But the idea of meconium aspiration syndrome as being the cause of the neonatal deaths that we observe with meconium aspiration syndrome is largely wrong. The leading cause of death among newborns with meconium aspiration syndrome is persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. It's very likely that persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn is a different disease process altogether that's related to meconium only in that there has been some chronic stressor that's caused both thickening of the pulmonary artery walls and also caused the baby to pass its stool before birth. And it's likely not the case that meconium aspiration after delivery is what leads directly to the pulmonary hypertension. But our profession was stuck on this theory for many decades, so trying to remove meconium as a way of preventing deaths that were occurring due to pulmonary hypertension made sense to them. For something that deeply ingrained, you need very strong and definitive evidence to convince people to change their practice, and that's what we finally got in 2005. And by the way, in the New England Journal of Medicine, when that article was published, there's an accompanying editorial that goes in and talks about this idea of distinguishing between the pulmonary hypertension and the meconium aspiration syndrome. Yeah, on 
the topic of names deciding how we think about things, we can mention amniotic fluid embolism as another disease process that probably needs to be renamed. But let's go back to amnioinfusion here. Well, we did rename it to anaphylactoid syndrome of pregnancy, but it never caught on. Nobody liked it. Yeah, I think it just doesn't have quite the same ring as AFE. Maybe we should ask someone with a marketing advertising background if they have any other ideas. But if you think about it in terms of that name, you'll understand better immediately how to treat it, meaning things like high-dose steroids and things like that. Yeah. Anyway, the reason why people still do amnio infusion today is for recurrent variable fetal heart rate decelerations, not anymore for meconium. But you said there was a subgroup in that that 2005 trial. Did that tell us anything about the impact of amnio infusion in pregnancies with recurrent variable decelerations? Well, unfortunately, no. 81% of the patients didn't have recurrent variable decelerations in that study, and they just stratified those patients who did into the two groups equally. So they didn't do any further analysis of that or any breakdown of what the impact would have been based upon the presence of variables. That's quite a shame because with this study, they could have easily set it up to test for the effect on recurrent variables as well as testing for the effect on meconium. It's almost as if they weren't even remotely thinking about that association though. And they should have been because amnioinfusion was first described for relief of variable D cells in 1990. So it's not like that was an unknown theory at the time. And in that trial, it was 100 patients. This was in the Gray Journal. And they did find a lower rate of cesarean delivery due to fetal distress in the amnio infusion group, but it wasn't statistically significant, probably because it was only 100 patients and they didn't find any other differences in outcomes. And since then, a lot of other small studies were conducted in subsequent years looking at amnio infusion in various populations and with various outcomes of interest. And by 2012, there was the Cochrane Review published that included 19 studies, only of which two studies had at least 200 patients or more enrolled. So all the rest were really small studies again. And they concluded that there was a relative risk of 0.62 for having a cesarean delivery if amnio infusion was used, along with improvements like five-minute APGAR outcome. So there was also a trend towards fewer neonates with pHs under 7.2. That wasn't statistically significant, though. And I don't think there's been any new studies on amnio infusion published since that Cochrane review. But of those two studies I mentioned that were bigger than 200 patients, the largest one was in 2005. It had 483 women, and they concluded that cesareans were reduced by 30% and five-minute APGARs were improved in NICU admission rates were lower, with all with amnioinfusion. The next largest study was from earlier. It was from 1999, and it had 200 participants. They also showed a lower incidence of any operative delivery, cesarean or vaginal, and also an improvement in the neonatal acid-base status. So all of this is to lead up to my question of why don't people today believe that amnioinfusion is beneficial? 
Well, I think maybe that it's due to a misinterpretation of the Cochrane review that we just talked about. If we take umbilical artery gases as objective evidence of improvement or worsening in neonatal status, then the Cochrane review didn't find a statistically significant difference in gases. Other outcomes, however, were improved, like APGARs, but of course, that may be true just because APGARs are subjective and a poor measure of acid-base status. But the thing that I've taken away from all of that for years is that it does reduce the risk of cesarean delivery without worsening neonatal outcomes. And maybe that's the important part of all this. The fact is, all of the baby's metrics in both arms of all those studies follow higher rates of cesarean deliveries in the non-intervention group. What would have happened if the non-intervention group was allowed to continue to labor and essentially you controlled for the risk of cesarean? Those pregnancies were ended early by early cesareans, so the stresses perhaps that were improved with the amnioinfusion weren't reflected in those outcomes. Yeah, it's that's exactly the point. None of these studies allowed the control groups to continue laboring for the same duration that the amnioinfusion groups labored for. They only allowed them, yeah, they let them have their recurrent variables only long enough to warrant that cesarean, not any longer. While in the amnioinfusion group, the decelerations would resolve with the amnioinfusion and then they didn't need the cesarean as often. I bet if you did this study in a developing nation without surgical capacity, maybe retrospectively even, and they literally did not have the option of doing cesareans, then unfortunately, you probably would see the difference in neonatal outcomes too, favoring amnioinfusion. But the fact in these studies, it took 30% more cesareans in the non-intervention group in these studies to equalize neonatal outcomes suggests to me that the net benefit actually is huge for the mom if you have cesareans or for the baby in all other settings. Yeah, and you pointed this out to me. I don't want to take credit for your thoughts. This was your brilliant observation. But the studies about amnioinfusion and meconium, remember, they did appear to find a benefit in low resource countries, in poor countries, where and they said specifically countries that didn't have good access to fetal monitoring and perhaps also access to immediate cesarean delivery, those environments, they showed some benefit. So what may have been going on there had nothing to do maybe with meconium, but surely there was a subgroup who had severe variable decelerations in those groups. And if they may have surreptitiously been treating those with amnioinfusion. And then that subset that had variables may have improved outcomes because the variables got treated, but though they weren't monitoring them or intervening with cesareans. So essentially that may be the kind of study that we're talking about where we've controlled for vaginal and cesarean delivery rate. And we unknowingly treated variable decelerations with amnioinfusion and saw improvements in neonatal outcomes. And that makes sense when you put all of these things together that we've been talking about. But to do such a study in a controlled way in a first world nation, of course, would be, and in any other nation, would be very ethically inappropriate, meaning to allow pregnancies to progress to a vaginal delivery despite what we know to be abnormal fetal heart rate patterns that we can improve with amnioinfusion. And I would just say, if you don't think that lowering your risk of cesarean delivery by 30 plus percent is an important thing to do, that that's an improvement, that that's a benefit, then we're off the wrong start anyway. How many things are there in obstetrics that you can do that lowers your risk of cesarean delivery by 30 percent? That's the reason to do it. 
regardless of anything else. Yeah, exactly. I can't even think of anything else. So I'm glad I convinced you on that. Well, I think I've always been convinced to do them for recurrent variable decelerations. I never stop doing them, even though I tell myself that I'm not going to do an unnecessary cesarean for some category two tracing. I still do the amnio infusions, but maybe that's the point. If you think that you're not going to do an unnecessary cesarean for a potentially abnormal tracing, then maybe you think you don't need to do amnio infusions, but that is just illogical, especially if the intervention is actually improving outcomes by allowing the newborn a reprieve from those stressors that gives a time for vaginal delivery to occur. Yeah, the reason that cesareans are not necessary for every category two fetal heart tracing, or even for most of them, is precisely because they can be resolved with interventions like amnio infusion. So that, yeah. Okay, well, I've gotten my fill of the amnio infusion discussion for now. So let's move on to a few more things before we finish up, if I think we've got a bit of time. So let's talk about how we talked about this a little bit last time where TikTok seems to have affected at least what your patients think about birth control. So there was a new abstract that searched for TikTok videos with the hashtags birth control or the hashtag birth control problems. And they found 220 videos with a combined total of over 500 million views. 84% of these videos were created by lay people, not medical professionals, and another 11% of them were made by homeopaths or naturopaths. So that adds up to 95% of videos with the hashtag birth control or birth control problems being made by people other than legitimate medical authorities. And about 150 of these videos talked about the adverse side effects or complications of birth control. And all but five of those negative videos were made by lay people. Just a couple of specific examples of things people talked about. About a quarter of them blamed their mental health problems or mood disorders on their birth control. And about a quarter of them also blamed their weight gain on birth control. Yeah, it's killing me. And social media in general has <laughs> long been a cesspool, but it's really gotten down to the one minute video or less where we're taking incredibly complex topics and being overly reductive with them in arbitrary, good and bad ways, black and white. You don't have much time to do complex reasoning or thoughtful analysis in a one-minute video. But yeah, that's pretty bad. Although I'd assume if you're searching under the hashtag birth control problems, you're going to find a lot of negative and amateurish content. But this is still very similar to another study that looked at the top 100 TikTok videos under hashtag IED, which you would think would be a more neutral descriptive title. In this study, they had a total of 470 million views. 37% of these videos were created by healthcare professionals, which is a little bit better than the study you mentioned. But still, only 19% of the videos had a positive tone about IEDs. They also applied validated scores for information quality and actionability, and the average scores were about one out of five. So I assume the videos by laypeople accounted for most of these low scores, although I'm not sure. And I also say I feel sorry for whoever had to sit there and watch all these videos for this research. But yeah, it's just a cesspool of misinformation and misattribution of symptoms. And unfortunately, a lot of it is sponsored, I think, by industries that sell alternatives to birth control, who want to scare women about birth control, whatever those might be. 
Just in the examples you mentioned, it should suffice to say here that the science does not really support any relationship between birth control and mood disorders, which I guess we should do an episode on, or birth control and weight gain, except maybe for the case of Depo-Provera. But otherwise, healthy women often become sexually active or seek medical management of abnormal menses or something like that in early adulthood when they're 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, also right about the time when their vertical growth is coming to a stop and their metabolism is slowing, at a time when they don't necessarily change their eating habits, but their activity is decreasing and their metabolism is decreasing, so they gain some weight, that freshman 20 or COVID 35 or whatever, and then they blame it on the only real thing that's new in their life from their perception, which is often their birth control. And when life gets more complicated as they move out of the house and start a new job or start college or have relationship problems or just more in general life stresses and things like that, then they blame that ensuing anxiety or depression or things like that on their birth control and not on the major life stressors and changes that they've been experiencing. And then they go to TikTok and they search for these sorts of things and the confirmation bias takes over and they find out they're not alone in these feelings and they find a lot of other misinformation spouted by folks with similar thoughts and it continues to enable and empower these false beliefs. The amount of progesterone that a patient gets from a hormonal IUD or hormonal birth control in general, but especially a medicated IUD is much lower than you would get during your own normal menstrual cycle. And so any effect on increasing appetite or things like that from progesterone, which is what they're thinking, would be negligible and less than their own physiologic condition would give them. If their ovulation were suppressed by a birth control pill or progestin-only method that actually had less progesterone in it. But patients will sometimes come in and they'll want their IED removed and they'll want to switch to a birth control pill or something like that because of what they've read on TikTok. And then I'm like, hey, you know that there's like two orders of magnitude more progesterone in the pill you want to take than in the IED. And you're trying to avoid the hormone in the IED by taking two orders of magnitude more hormone in a pill, let alone what your ovaries naturally make. I really wish I could tolerate TikTok enough to go in there and put something that's actually helpful just to try to be in the a drop in the bucket against all that misinformation. And I am glad for medical professionals out there that do that and they do venture out into the cesspool. And it takes effort to try to put legitimate information onto social media in a one minute catchy digestible way. And if you only have five followers, who cares anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of which, if you do like the podcast, you should share it with people. So there you go. We we don't do a very good job of self-promotion. I realize we've probably never said or asked people on the podcast to share it. And we're not good at that. So the people on TikTok really are, though. Not my jam. I might uh, need to. We have to do some shameless self-promotion, I guess, sometimes. But I need to see how these TikTokers get all these views for their incorrect information. But anyway. It's only, only so many hours in the day. So for now, I think I would just generally discourage my patients and friends and everyone from looking to TikTok for any kind of medical information. Yeah, and you can't do everything. And besides, your toddler will just take your phone away if you're watching the videos anyway. So you won't be able to get your phone back for a few hours anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. He's quite a little policeman with the phone, I guess. I guess infants want attention or something. I, I don't know. Okay, well, I have a study to talk about, and this is from the journal Menopause from this month. This one has 
Sadly, nothing to do with TikTok. This is a study that sought to estimate how large the placebo effect is among randomized controlled trials for interventions that treat moderate or severe vasomotor symptoms. You do love the placebo effect, don't you? If you tell me that I love it, I will love it. I'm very vulnerable to the placebo effect. But anyway, this was interesting in that they were able to quantify how much the placebo effect would lead to specific reductions in the quantity and severity of symptoms. So they estimated by looking at many different studies that the placebo effect alone would lead to a reduction of 5.44 episodes or occurrences of symptoms per day, hot flashes, and that the severity would be reduced by 0.36. That's pretty substantial if you appreciate the claims made by lots of herbal and other interventions for treatment of hot flashes. I think, well, yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to say it, but yeah, I think a lot of people would buy an over-the-counter remedy that claims it led to five fewer hot flashes per day or that it lowered the severity of symptoms by a third, which is pretty much the magnitude of effect of placebo. Yeah, and actually a little less than the placebo effect. But yes, it sounds like a great product, but it's just the placebo effect. Yeah, well, I'm sure you want to mention that the opposite of placebo is nocebo. Well, those TikTok videos definitely are creating the nocebo effect for us in regards to birth control and a lot of other things health-related. The nocebo effect is simply if you tell someone that something's going to cause a side effect or a problem, then they're more likely to experience it. It's the opposite of the placebo effect. So if a TikTok video tells our patients that they can expect to experience a certain adverse effect with birth control, then they're more likely to experience that adverse effect. So TikTok is actually literally hurting people in real terms by inducing the nocebo effect. I'm glad you could get that off your chest. Well, there's another very important study, just quickly to mention, from October 2022, JAMA Internal Medicine. They looked at the association of antidepressant use during pregnancy and what was the risk of neurodevelopmental disorders in the children. They had a cohort of almost 150,000 antidepressant-exposed pregnancies, and they looked for any possible associations with a variety of things, including autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, specific learning disorders like development or speech or language disorders, and coordination disorders and intellectual disabilities or behavioral problems, and they found no associations with any of them. Yeah, and I think this is a really important study that answers a huge question that we've had about the safety of antidepressant use during pregnancy. And this is really the final answer that I think we needed. And we should maybe do an episode sometimes about all the different ways antidepressants and psychotropic medications could be harmful during pregnancy. But for antidepressants, this was sort of the last area where we needed a really good study and whether or not they're safe during pregnancy. And the answer is they are. And so I think that that's huge for answering that last question. Well, I think that's a good note to end on for today. So the Thinking About OBGYN website is going to have links to what we talked about. Wait, 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 wait. You've got to change your ending. You've got to ask people to smash the like button. Oh, God. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to smash the share button. So you got, there's some smashing involved. There's some subscribing oh. involved. I'm not sure, but you've got to enthusiastically ask for it. <laughs> I'll work do all on that. that. <laughs> self-promotion stuff. I don't feel like smashing the like button. You're just going to... Break, break your phone. Don't break Maybe, phone. but seriously, people should. If you residents or colleagues or whatever that would enjoy the podcast, please do share yeah. and fight back on the TikTok social yeah, media like, nonsense. Yeah, like get some good word of mouth or 
something. All right. Well, we'll be back in a couple of weeks and you guys can email us thinking about OBGYN at gmail.com if you got hate mail or anything else. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thinkingaboutobgyn.com. Be sure to subscribe. Look for new episodes every two weeks.